just so you're, you're aware, I, I think um, I've heard from some people in church before that they're like, I don't read the Bible because it's confusing. And, the church, and sometimes people in the church are like, oh, it's not confusing at all. I would agree with you. Uh, sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's, uh, it doesn't quite make sense. And so this morning is one of those that we wonder where it's at because not many of us realize that first, or Second Samuel chapter 20 is where the narrative ends, and then we pick up the rest of the story in First Kings, and 21 to 24 are kind of like these four little stories intertwined that have really no chronological value. Um, these were not like these things happen in chronological order. They're just four stories that the author of Second Samuel decided to throw in this morning. Uh, David and the Gibbonites uh, is 21. David and the Philistines is the end of 21. And then in 20... Um, Two, you have this little song that David puts together, and then in 23, you have David's mighty men, and then finally in 24, we have this thing called a census. So think of Second Samuel as chapters 1 through 20 is the narrative, and then chapters 21 to 24 is kind of the appendix uh, of Second Samuel, and that's where we are going to pick up today. Um, not only is that confusing... You picked a good Sunday, <laughs> because not only is that confusing, but if you've read through the chapter, you have everything from the wrath of God that seems disproportionate to the actual event that happened in the chapter. You have angels of death. You have numbers and names that don't match from Second Samuel to First Chronicles chapter 21. You have uh, Satan, God, or David, who's the one really to blame in this chapter. And then you have this weird thing of a Jebusite. What in the world is a Jebusite and who is Gad? And so all of that is in chapter 24. Um, and I chose to end there. So you're welcome. Uh, I don't know if you're that appreciative, but I think it's going to be really good once we get into it because while this chapter will paint a harsh reality, and while this chapter will have a ton of moving parts, it truly does wrap up our series on David well, and I think you'll see why. Um, a couple reasons why, and then we're going to pray before we jump into this bad boy this morning. But the sovereignty of God as king will be on display in this chapter. God is the king and the ruler and the ultimate decision maker. We will see uh, in this chapter, it'll show us why David is a man after God's own ho- heart. We'll see in this chapter uh, that while David is flawed, he is still a good example. And along the way, chapter 24, we'll throw in a couple Easter eggs that will continue on the legacy of the story of David. It will carry on the legacy of Israel, and it will basically give us even some Easter eggs into the grand narrative of God and the coming of Jesus. For those who don't know what Easter eggs, they're kind of the things in the spoilers in movies that the, the directors kind of put into movies, and they're kind of in there, but they don't really make a big deal of it until after the movie comes out. And you're like, oh, they totally, they totally put that in there. And, and so that's kind of what this is going to be. Here, So saying all that, I cannot give you everything from chapter 24, but I also want to wrap up David's life for us well, and so we will do that this morning. Let me pray for us as we begin into this um, chapter. God, we uh, realize that as we come into your word, it is uh, living and active. It is meant to transform us, not just to be listened to. This morning, Father, I pray that there would be clarity um, God, more than anything else this morning, I pray there be clarity around your word. May we leave here knowing better who you are. May we leave here with a better understanding of how you've made us to worship you. But most importantly, again, may we leave here knowing the God that we serve. That you are a God who is, yes, has a side of wrath, but it is wrapped in mercy, and we are given Jesus. God, if it was just about David this morning, we'd be in some serious trouble. 
But I thank you so much that this points us to who Jesus is, and I pray that this morning we would understand that well. And hear my pray. Amen. All right, so a couple goals. This is going to be a little more heady this morning, so just so you're aware. Uh, we got a lot of room, we got a lot of ground to cover as we finish out this morning. But goal number one is that you understand God's character. If you don't understand God's character, you can do a bunch of good things in church and do a lot of good things in Christian life, and you can do them all for the wrong reasons unless you know the character of the God that you serve. Everything boils down to who is God, because if you know who God is, you'll know how God operates and why he does things. So here's our bottom line. I'm going to give it to you up front so that you have this, and then we're going to dive into a little more. But here's the bottom line. God's wrath is, one, never random. God's wrath is wrapped in mercy, and it is, lastly, absorbed in Jesus. And we're going to walk through all of those pieces this morning. It is never random. It is always wrapped in mercy, and it is absorbed by Jesus. Goal number, that's, that's you understand. That's my full purpose. If we can get that this morning, we'll be okay. Goal number two is that you're probably going to have some questions. I pray that those get answered today as we think about the life of David. And goal number three is that you can apply some of these truths of David's life to your own. So here we go. Chapter 24. Um, First thing you need to realize is literary structure as we head into chapter 24 is a little different than maybe some of the other passages that we've looked at before. Because what we come into in, the, in this chapter is what's found ultimately throughout a lot of Old Testament literature. So if you look through the Old Testament, you're going to see the way that they write. We read it as a chapter, right? You open it, you kind of read through it like you would any other book. You read it as it is. The author actually wrote this in a way that was meant to show us something bigger than just reading it on paper, you know, left to right, chapter, number, verse. Does that make sense? So here's what he's trying to get after. There's a great literary term in the Old Testament, uh, and it's called a chiasm. Uh, A chiasm is a list of ideas or events that is structured in such a way that the first item parallels the last item, and the second item parallels the next to the last item, and so forth. So let me just kind of give you an example, because you're kind of like, what? I didn't come here for theology class. Yeah, you did. You're welcome. Um, And so let me just kind of show you what this means. So I could say, I got up this morning, I got dressed, I drove to work, I worked hard all day, I drove home, I put on comfortable clothes, and I went to bed, right? That's a typical sentence, and you would think nothing of it had I not put it into a structure like this. But a chiasm simply says there is an opposite A to A. So let's say I got up this morning. The opposite is I went to bed. So there's an A to A ratio in this sentence. And then it goes B to B. I got dressed. I put on comfortable clothes. I didn't want to put undressed because I want to creep anybody out in the room. Um, But I got dressed and then I came home and I put on comfortable clothes. And then you have in the middle uh, this idea of I drove to work and I drove home. So opposite ends of the spectrum. Work and home are opposites. And then in the very middle of a chiasm typically is the most important piece of what the author is trying to get you to understand. And the biggest part of this story is that I worked hard all day. I wanted you to know that, right? Um, It was probably a Sunday, because that's the only day I work. But other than that, I worked hard all day on a Sunday, okay? And so that's the main point of the chiasm, is I worked hard all day. And so a chiasm basically is, again, it's just a narrative way, a literary structure of seeing something that we don't see this in our Bibles. Like, you didn't turn to chapter 24 and be like, oh, that's kind of a weird, why does it look like this? It, it, it's just a normal chapter, but it's why we have what we have this morning, and that's kind of the chiasm there. The chiasm of chapter 24 looks like this, and I'm gonna, it's going to be really small, so we're going to go piece by piece. It's in your bulletins as well, so you can see it there. You can take time to fill it in. Don't worry about that right now. You're going to be like, order, okay, don't, don't fill it in. I'll get there. We're coming to it. But the chiasm looks like this, that there's wrath and orders in A, sacrifice 
sacrifice and wrath, B and B match, C and C match, D and D match, E and E match, and then E or F, wrath inflicted, is the biggest part of the story. And you're like, oh, that's fantastic. The wrath inflicted, that's the end. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first half, and that'll be blown up for you a little bit bigger. A, B, B, go to the first next slide. Um, that will show you kind of where we're heading at the very beginning is this first part of the chiasm. And then the second part of the chiasm is found there. And we're going to get into those here this morning as we kind of walk through. So we're going to basically just follow the chiasm as we go along. We're going to read together. We're going to find out what this is all about. And then we're going to go from there. So whew, here we go. Ready? Here we go. Chapter 24, verse 1. End of David's life. Let's get into it. Verse 1. And again, verse 1. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. No big deal, right? We think he's just going to number some people. This isn't a big deal. He can do it. But here's some interesting words in verse 1 that if you've never been in church before, if you've been in a while and not in church, verse 1 causes a lot of people to panic. Uh, Verse 1 causes a lot of confusion because you read, and again, the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go and number the people of Israel. In other words, we feel like God's behind this. God is moving something ahead of us. If you go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, which is the um, parallel story of this one, you'll get even more confused because in that chapter, in 1 Chronicles 21, it says, uh, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Job and the commanders of the army, Go and number Israel from Bathsheba to Dan and bring to me a report that I may know their number. Is it God? Is it Satan? Is it David? And how does that work in my theology if this is something that God is behind in all these kind of pieces? We see something similar in the book of Job. Um, We also realize that God does not cause people to sin. Uh, He does not, he's not able to do that. That's one of the things that keeps his holiness in holiness. And so he, he doesn't cause sin. But what we see clearly here we see in the book of Job, uh, is that there are times where God will, for better or worse, give you the visual, almost as if he's kind of got uh, the faucet uh, turned off in our life from the attacks of the enemy on our life. And there are times where he'll just allow the faucet to run and he'll, he'll allow Satan to kind of do some things in our life that we don't always enjoy. But God has a purpose behind it. We see it with Job, where he kind of relented and said, you can go this far. He goes here with David. Go ahead. You can do this thing this far. And and so, for better or worse, you have a God who says, I will often, not often, I will sometimes use these evil things to accomplish my purposes. And that's a hard theology, right? Right? Until you think of the cross of Jesus Christ, who, uh, that was an evil thing that he used for redemptive purpose. You're going to see more of that in a second. Romans chapter 1, verses 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness again suppress the truth. Therefore, 24 and 25, you see it here in Romans. Therefore, God gave them up. That's a huge term. God gave them up. God turned the faucet on. God kind of allowed the floodgates to open a little bit. 
And he said, you can, you can have it. You can, you can cause some of these things. And here, I'm going to allow it for now, which is crazy. For the wrath of God to be revealed from heaven against ungodliness. For therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies and among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This theology is, yes, Satan is behind it. But this theology also gets us to the point to realize that we as humanity have a sin nature in us. And left to ourselves, our sin nature is always pushing at us, always driving us to do things. Always that thing of, man, I did not think I would go that far. And yet God sometimes allows these things in our life to happen. That's what's happening here. He's allowing this to happen. And David makes the choice to do something that he should not do. So we continue on in the second part of the chiasm. This is Joab's objection and David's insistence. So verse 3 and 4. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So Joab's like, don't do this. This is not what you're supposed to do. This is a, this is a test. Don't go and do this. Why is this a big deal? This is a big deal because David was at peace. David did not need to number his military. He did not need to puff himself up with how big and how impressive he was as a nation by going and numbering and taking the census that was meant to puff up his pride and his arrogance and to say, look what I have, look at the military might that I have. And this is partly on David, right? Because he's made the choice to defy what, instead of saying, I'm going to trust God, he instead says, I'm going to do my own thing. And he goes and he numbers this against the counsel of his uh, advisor, Joab, who is the, basically the leader of all the armies that he has. So Joab's objection, and David doesn't hear it. To which we get to a, a really interesting little quote that I found in one of the readings, and it was this. Charles Wendell in his book, David, says, Spiritual leaders should operate in humility and accountability. An unaccountable life is a dangerous life. We see this again and again and again in David's life. This is on par with David and Bathsheba, right? Where there was somebody in his life that was like, hey, you probably shouldn't do this. She's a married woman. This is Joab saying, hey, you shouldn't do this. This is not what God wants you to do. And so this unaccountable life of David says, I'm just going to do what I want. And many of us can take this to heart of saying an unaccountable life is a dangerous life. And David proceeds to do something that he should not have done. So, C. We get into the journey and the counting. So, verses 5 through 9. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aor, from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jazer. And then they came to Gilead and to Kaddish and the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to Negeb and of Judah and Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. So he goes, he does this counting, goes around the area. It took nine months and 20 days, or four, it took 285 days to count all of the people. He comes back and he gives the report. In Israel, there are 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And in the men of Judah, there were 500,000. So let me just give you this as well. Another little Easter egg in here. 
In the book of 2 Samuel, the author tends to round numbers up. In 1 Chronicles, the number is kind of a solid number, and there's debate back and forth whether why the numbers are different. But in 1 Chronicles, just so you know, in 1 Chronicles, you'll get 1,100,000 valiant men in Israel, and then in Judah, you'll get 470,000. And there's a whole reasons and rationale as far as why the numbers are different, but you need to know that so you don't get into 1 Chronicles, and you're like, they didn't tell me the numbers were... There's a whole thing. We don't have time for that this morning, but that's kind of where we go. Second Samuel is rounding these numbers up. He's giving you the, the, the big gist of what he's trying to get. And the point isn't the numbers. The point is that David is doing something that is opposed to what God was wanting him to do. Not rest in his own military might, but trust in the God that he served. So David takes this sentence. He counts these men, to which many of us would say, no big deal. What's the problem? This is fine. Let's see how God responds to this thing. This is where we get into some interesting stuff today. Verse 10, David's remorse and God's direction. Here we go into the other part of the chiasm. David's remorse and God's direction, 10 to 13. But David's heart struck him. Interesting. Let's just highlight, circle that. With Bathsheba, David's heart did not strike him. With Bathsheba, he tried to cover it up. With Bathsheba, he wanted to kind of go deeper into his sin. He wanted to go further down the rabbit hole. Here, he says his heart struck him after he had numbered the people. Psalm 32 would give you some interesting reading into that. He had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. So he realizes this. He's like, this is not what I should have done, and the end of my life is to tick off the God that I serve by doing something so arrogant as to say, look at what I have. Look at what I've built. And David said, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? That's option number one. Or shall you flee for three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or third, or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him. So Gad is the spiritual advisor. He says to David, here's the options. Let me know which one you choose so that I can go back and talk to God and figure out what we're going to do about this thing. Here's a couple things you need to realize in this, this little section. One, David went straight to God, not hiding this time. That's huge. David was remorseful. He was fearful of God and not being caught was not on the top of his list. Bathsheba was about just not getting caught and covering things up. He's changing. He's showing us how to truly repent and turn. He was remorseful. He was fearful of God. He was not worried about being caught or making excuses. He saw God first. And as he looks to God, he's going to say something here that's very crucial to us to understand what it is that he's trusting in. But before we get into that, we realize that God is now going to test David by saying, you've done this thing, here are three options for you to choose from. Three-year famine, three months attacks from your enemies, three days of pestilence. So when you think pestilence, think Exodus, frogs, boils, think Revelation, seals opening, bad, bad stuff that only God does by his hand through nature. Think very, very apocalyptic kind of, that's pestilence, not just kind of, it was a bad day, we kind of got sick. It was, it, was a, a, it was a really bad thing for these three days that was to come. And, and, and I'm struck by this because this is one of the 
only times, maybe in Moses, that we see God giving options. Does that confuse anybody? That confused me. I'm reading this and I'm like, so God gives me options to my sin. Is this like the 1980s where you had the book, right? And you could find your own ending, right? I choose to go down the rabbit hole. And then you cheat and you read ahead. You're like, oh, nope, not the rabbit hole. And you go back to the same chapter. Like, no, I choose the cave of wonder. And you're like, I'm going to the cave. And so is it that kind of thing? Like we kind of make our own adventure. We kind of choose our thing. I don't fully know, but here's what I do know is that God is doing this to test David. And God has a plan from the beginning that he wanted to do. And let's keep in mind, as we look at this, this was not just about David. Because if you go back to verse 1, the Lord's anger was, anger was directed towards who? Israel. Okay? It was directed toward Israel. David was simply being used by God to accomplish something bigger. So, he gives them three options. And here we see, in verse 14, the beauty of David. The, the learned David. The, the, the grown-up David. So here's what he says in verse 14, mercy trusted. This is, this is kind of getting us almost to the main point here, but he, he's going to trust in God's mercy in verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Yeah, I would too. If I'm king of the nation and all my options are bad, I don't know what I would choose. It's basically like if I was in charge of this church and God said, hey, your church can either go through this terrible thing, this terrible thing, or this terrible thing. You get to choose which terrible thing because of your leadership. You, you pick. David's like, I don't even, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. So what's he do? He does the wise thing. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us, that's a huge pronoun. David is changing. Let us, let Israel, not me anymore. This isn't just about me. It's not my woe is me, poor leader, blah, blah, blah. This is let us, Israel, fall into the hand of God, of the Lord. For his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Isn't that beautiful? David's now finally learned. I could make a decision, but it's probably going to be the wrong decision. I'm going to turn this over to God, and I'm going to let him decide. He's the one that's put this before me. He's the wise one. I'm going to trust him with where we need to go. I'm going to trust him to make the choice. Let us fall into the hands of God. David does not choose. He says, God is more wise. I don't trust my own wisdom, so he chooses. And he knows that his mercy is great. Highlight and circle that because you're going to question that in just a second. Verse 15. Here's the main point of this whole little chiasm here. This is what the author wants us to see. The wrath of God. This is the wrath of God fully on display. Wrath inflicted, sentence carried out. Israel's sin God says, I see your sin. Your sin needs dealt with. We're going to deal with your sin. And God says this in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. That's crazy. That's crazy. So God says, I've seen your sin and I'm going to deal with it because you won't turn. And the wrath of God is inflicted. The wrath of God is poured out. The wrath of God is what makes so many of us uncomfortable with the Bible. The wrath of God is what we could spend hours talking about because it just seems so anti what we like about God. God's supposed to be loving and nice and kind, and yet we see wrath, and how can he be wrathful? God can be wrathful because he is just. God can be wrathful because he is holy. 
to give you uh, how A.W. Pink, one of a, a great uh, theologian, says this. He, say, he says, a study of the concordance will show you that there are more references in Scripture to the anger and the fury and the wrath of God than there are to his love and his tenderness. And yet, probably in church, all you've heard is a love and tenderness. And I have nothing wrong with a love and tenderness. But if we are going to be strong, literate people of the Bible, we have to understand that God's wrath is also part of who he is. He says this, the wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. God is angry against sin because it is rebelling against his authority a wrong done to his inviolable sovereignty. Only God is God. Only God can be who he is. And only he can decide what is true and just. And so there's this huge pestilence. So obviously we see God chose option number three. Three days. We're going to get this thing done. We're going to take this thing out. And then in verse 16, we see the mercy again. And mercy is trusted in 1, 14. It is on display in 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. That's going to be very, very important. That's one of the Easter eggs. But mercy was displayed. Wrath and mercy are intertwined. Wrath comes from his holiness, perfection that demands consequence, and yet mercy is always there. Mercy was that he didn't continue this destruction into the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine if he would have continued and Jerusalem then would have been gone? Their entire city, their entire nation would have been gone, would have been wiped out. And then you get this confusing thing in 16, which we do not have time to get into, of the angel who was working these destructions. You're like, wait a second, now there's an angel of death? You didn't tell me about an angel of death. What is that about, right? And so we, we could go hours in that, but, but let me just say that this was simply an execution of his judgment upon the sin of Israel. And God was telling Israel at this time, my wrath is not to be taken lightly. We see it in full display here. And yet he relents in mercy. He says, you shall go no further, and he stops. Now, we see after this, the other part of the chiasm started to come in. We see now David's remorse and God's direction. Same kind of thing we saw earlier, but here we see David as he speaks. And this is beautiful. 2 Samuel 24, 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, this is crazy, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. Do you see how different David is? With Bathsheba, he's killing everybody in his path and he's hiding everything and he doesn't care. Nathan has to come to him and say, there's a little lamb story and you took the lamb. Here, David, almost on par with that, says, I have sinned, I've done wickedly, but Please, put this on me. Don't put this on Israel anymore. This is the king. I made this choice. I decided to do the counting. I'm the one responsible. As your spiritual leader and as pastor of this church, there is a weight and a heaviness on the elders of this church that is not taken lightly. 
When we, when we step into leadership in the church, I think so often maybe you've been in churches where leadership's kind of talked about, but you see some of the leaders and you're like, uh, I'm not really sure if that's really what. In this church, we take the Bible seriously, we take God seriously, and we say as leaders of this church, it is a heavy, heavy weight to step into leadership because we realize the decisions we make impact a large number of people. And we I am responsible when I get to heaven. I will be responsible and God will say to me, how did you care for my church? Us as elders, we can ask it to ourselves all the time. How did you care for the church? How did you care for the church? Are you doing the right things this week? Did you pray this week? are Are you doing the right stuff? That's different than when I get to eternity and I have to face God himself. And he's gonna say, how did you care for Community Bible Church? Did you shepherd them like I shepherd would wanna shepherd them? And I can tell you, I throw myself on the grace of God every single week because I realize how big of a burden it is to be a pastor. Not for the sake of the hours and time, but my boss is in eternity. And my boss is going to be waiting when I get there, there will be a question, not only to your church, but you'll ask all of us, how did you care for your family as well? Did you shepherd your wife in the way you're supposed to shepherd your wife? Did you care for your kids? How'd you do? I rely on the grace of God and I don't get what I deserve for what is in front of us. This is a heavy thing this morning, and I don't want to run from it. David knew this was a heavy thing, and he says, this is on me. So then we see the other part of the, the, the chiasm and the journey and the purpose now. And we see that his journey then goes back, and it's not the journey to count. This is now a journey in this place to where the Lord's wrath had stopped. So it says the Lord stopped, the, 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 the dying stopped at the threshing floor of Aruna. So then David goes now to see Aruna and to talk to him. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, this is on me. Verse 18, we see the journey now in 18, 18 uh, eight, or 19 to 21. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, arise to the altar of the Lord of the threshing floor of Arubah, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word at the Lord commanded. When Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has the Lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from my people. The journey and the purpose is going to make up for the journey of going and taking this count. Here's the interesting little Easter egg thrown in here for us. This place was the same place of the Jebusites. If you don't know the Jebusites, the Jebusites were a banned Canaanite group in the Exodus times that God told to get rid of them because of the evilness of who they were. It didn't happen, it didn't happen, it didn't happen. David, this was the, 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 the same area nation that in the beginning of David's life, remember we talked about the, the guys that would shave half the beard, right? And we said that was kind of embarrassing and rural and crude and the most horrible thing you could ever do to a human being ever. That was kind of them. Remember the ones that said, uh, you, you have to be blind and lame and they couldn't even get in our gates? Remember that? That's these people. And then they went in through the city gates and they did it. That's these people. Enemies, whole thing. This guy sees David come and he's like, this isn't good. Jebusites were 
not supposed to be here. And yet, here's what we know about the threshing floor of Aruna. Here is the mercy of God on display. You have to see this. This is so cool. It's almost like 2 Samuel threw it in, and he's almost like, let's see if they catch it. And Israel would catch it. I want you to catch it. Here's the thing. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1. Then David said, of this threshing floor, this is after 21 in 1 Chronicles 22, 20. Then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This threshing floor where God stopped was the actual foundation plot of land that the temple got built on. Isn't that crazy? This place, this unknown place, this Arubajebusite who had nothing to do with Israel, God says, in my mercy, I will stop. And in this place that I stopped, my presence stopped and didn't continue into Jerusalem, I want you to put my temple right here. And this will be the foundation, the lot, the plot of the great tabernacle that Solomon will build in 1 Kings. Only God can do these things. So David says, I can't just take it from you. I could, but I don't want to do that. There's got to be a penalty for my sins. He, I got to work through this. And so he says, I want to purchase this from you. So you see now Aruna's objection and David's insistence here in these following verses. Then Aruna said, um, he says, I want to buy it from you. And then Aruna said to David, let the Lord my king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And he, and he, he puts this place as this monument and he does so in a way that hopefully is kind of this justice of the sin that he's done. And then lastly, we see in verse 25, after all that's been done, verse 25, we get to the very end. We started with the idea that there was wrath and orders given. Now we come to there is sacrifice in the wrath. Verse 25, And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Here's a couple things in this, even verse 25, that we see throughout the story. Number one, God's wrath, again, is never random. This is not a story of God waking up and having a bad day and just killing people. I think that's what sometimes we can look at the Bible and just assume that's just God. He woke up on a bad day, he was ticked, and he just decided to take people out. This was a just thing for God to do in the sins of Israel and what they had done. This is God in his wisdom showing us his wrath being poured out on Israel. This happened again in Exodus. This happened other times in Israel's history. It's almost that they didn't learn. And God's like, you're dealing with a holy God here. This is not a God you just curl up next to and get comfy and be like, I just love him. He's so nice. He's like my grandpa. Give me butterscotch. This is such a good God. That is not the God you serve. Your God has a wrathful side because he hates what sin does and he hates what sin is. This is not random and it is wrapped in mercy. Mercy in the fact that he stopped. Mercy in the fact that he gave three options to David and mercy in the fact that he sets the temple up at this place and mercy that he even delights in us, his people. God's justice is never random. 
This, this wrath that is poured out that took out this many people, this pestilence that seemed huge by a national standard, and it was. It would have been talked about for generations of what God had done. Imagine if that happened here in the States, that these people just started dying at the hand of God. We'd all be like, this is crazy. What is happening? And all of this is a characteristic of God that his wrath is never random, is wrapped in mercy. And lastly, this is meant to point us to something bigger. Because his justice is never random, because he is a wrathful God, because sin demands a payment, the wrath of God is ultimately, in the end, absorbed by Jesus. Let me explain this and why I think this is so crucial to this passage and it's so crucial to David's life being the great, 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 great grandparent of the line of David, or of the line of Jesus. Jesus absorbs the wrath of our God. I don't think I was ever hit with that statement as much as I was in studying for this. Because in studying this passage, I had so many questions. I thought, this is so unfair. This is so unjust. All he did was count some people, and this is the kind of God that we have to deal with? And I thought, this is totally not at all fair or right, or how could you do this? I thought you were kind and gracious and all these things. And we see the wrath of God full display here for what it is. Isaiah Chapter 53, let me just read a couple verses for you as we close out to kind of show you the kind of God that we serve. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely, it's talking of Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah chapter 51. Verses 22 to 23, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. This cup mentioned in Isaiah, mentioned in Jeremiah, mentioned in Revelation. There is a cup image of staggering. This cup is mentioned as the next verse, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who said to you, bow down the way and pass over, and you have made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. This same cup is in Jeremiah 25, the same cup of wrath that we saw take out 70,000 men is in Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 to 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. They must drink or drain this cup of fury mentioned in Revelation chapter 16 or 17 to 21. 
This same cup, the same bowl, says that at, that at every island fled away and no mountain were to be found and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. This cup of wrath is like God full on who he is in his justice, giving full justice. It's his full on pouring out of what sin is deserving because he hates it. He can't be part of it. And here's the crucial part that I was blown away by this week, and here's where we close. When you think of that kind of onslaught of the wrath of God, here's what we know. When Jesus was in the garden at Gethsemane, he says at one point, as he's pouring sweat droplets of blood. He says, what? Father, take this cup from me. I firmly believe God was, Jesus wasn't scared of nails. (laughs) Jesus wasn't scared of a wooden beam. Jesus could handle pain. He's the son of God for crying out loud. He could handle the the rejection. He didn't care about all the Facebook posts against him. He didn't care about his social media accounts getting blown up. You're such a jerk, I hate you. (laughs) He didn't worry about those kind of things. He didn't care. He's God. I think from this passage and others, the thing that he was terrified of and he knew was coming was drinking the full wrath of God upon himself. Old theologian said, imagine a dam filled with 10,000 gallons, billions, whatever, trillion, 10,000 miles wide, 10,000 miles deep of fury. And the dam breaks and you're standing in front of this dam, 10,000 wide, 10,000 deep, and this is coming at you. And imagine as it's coming at you, he says, imagine Jesus stepping into that spot and saying, I'll take it. I'll take it. And he just pours and pours and pours and absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. You see, when you think of the cross, we think, oh, it's great and grace and there. I think these chapters give us a reminder of the wrath of God, that your God, Jesus Christ, took on his behalf the wrath of God and absorbed it all on him. Only he could do it. Only he could stand and take the weight of the fury of God upon himself for us so that we can live our lives and not be fearful of the wrath of God. Why? Because we can say, for those who have Jesus in our life, it was already handled. It was already taken care of at the cross. Jesus already absorbed all of it. And so when he looks at our sin and we say, God, I deserve wrath. I deserve death. I deserve condemnation for this. I deserve it, but I got Jesus. And Jesus already paid for everything. My hope as we end the life of David, is that you understand this morning the cross is not 
a small thing. The cross is not an insignificant thing that we just put into a song because it fits lyrically. (laughs) The cross is the place where Christ absorbed your wrath and my wrath and took it upon himself and looked at us as he took it and said, you're good. I got it. This morning, I hope that we understand Jesus absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf so that we can walk free. And to me, it makes me so thankful, so gracious to wake up every single morning and say, thank you. Thank you that you absorbed that on my behalf. Thank you that I don't have to wake up in fear every single morning wondering if God accepts me. I can wake up every morning knowing that this is the God that I serve. He who was poured out on our behalf took on the wrath of God for us. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land. The plague was averted from Israel. This plague was small in comparison to what eternity will look like. And God says, I have averted the plague of sin in your own life. And it's a free thing to to, to, to jump into this relationship with him. And this morning, as we ended the life of David, I wanted to just kind of draw us back to again. Yeah, it was fantastic. I've loved the life of David. I've loved learning about his life. I've loved the examples it set. I think for many of us in this church, we thought, man, this has been a really good series to understand our Bible and understand who he is. And this morning, I thought it'd be good just for us to remember, yes, David was there. But ultimately, this is about God. The king executes justice over sin, but he does so in mercy. God's wrath is never random. It is always wrapped in mercy. And praise God, it is absorbed in his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Let me pray. God, I thank you this morning for difficult passages like this. I thank you because it forces us to come to our knees and say, I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know. I don't have the wisdom you have. I don't, I don't, I don't claim to be that smart. I don't be, claim to have all the answers And so what I do is I do as David did with this passage. And I turn to you and I say, God, I need mercy. God, I lean on your mercy and trust your grace because without it, we are nothing. I turn to this passage and I think, thank Jesus. (laughs) Thank you, God, that you absorbed the wrath on our behalf. Thank you that you didn't cause us to handle it because we couldn't handle it. Thank you for taking it upon yourself and offering us freedom. It doesn't seem fair, if I'm honest, God. But that's grace. A God who takes it upon himself to deal with the injustice of sin so that we may walk free. May we respond and worship back to you as we close thanking you for being a God who, as we said earlier, is faithful and merciful and just. Amen.